Hi there, I'm Declan Carey and you're listening to the Redaction Politics podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by James Moles, our co-editor, and Mason Quar, our reporter. How are we doing today? You know, slowly soldiering on. What can you do when you're locked down? Yeah, any plans to, to go out next week, back into the world? Lockdown's supposed to end, isn't it? I mean, I'm currently at that sort of lockdown stage of, I can't wait for my next haircut. So <laughs> make of that what you will. Yeah, me too. I'm looking forward to a haircut. I'm, I think I'm planning it on Wednesday. Go straight in there. It needs to be done, I think. I remember during the first lockdown, because that was a much longer lockdown, obviously. And towards the end of that, my hair was just getting out of uh, out of control. It was beyond the joke. And then uh, I remember just as the days towards the lockdown were ending, I was like an eight-year-old counting down the days to my birthday to my haircut. It's like, oh, only two sleeps until my haircut. It's yeah, great. I mean, we've got, we can look forward to a haircut now. And then a few weeks after that, we can look forward to Christmas. It's like, it only gets better now, doesn't it, really? Well, we'll have to see about the vaccine next, won't we? Yeah. Um, well, today's topic, actually, of the episode, we're, we're going to look at a Green New Deal today. We're going to see what what sort of uh, policies that should include and the topic of climate change, which is becoming more urgent as every year goes by. Later in the episode, we're going to review The Crown, that season four of the hit Netflix series. So stick around for opinions on that. First of all, let's look at the Green New Deal. Um, what sort of policies should that include Oh, like uh, the big ones are that need to be done are changes not just in how we produce energy but uh, how we utilize it. You know, uh, but like Boris Johnson's environmental plan from last week, uh, like included provisions where he envisions the future where everyone drives hydrogen-powered cars, and that's just not something that's viable with the current green technologies. Uh, there isn't enough lithium on the planet for everyone to have the battery storage power and the technology to have their own electric car. We need to move beyond the age of personal transportation. I think that's going to be a big part. Obviously, there are much larger things that are more important to the climate in terms of how we manage industry and international shipping. But at the consumer end, the things that we're going to notice changing is that we're going to need to use public transport a lot more. And that means those are systems and infrastructure that need to be invested in a lot more than they have for generations. Absolutely. I mean, I live in the southwest of England where, you know, the public transport network here, there's a lot to be desired, shall we say. Very much true for other parts of England as well. Um, obviously, the public transport infrastructure in London is quite good. Do you think there's do you think there's a regional disconnect here? I would say so. Definitely. I mean, if we if we look at every single financial promise committed to on uh, the, this 10-point environmental plan, all of it sums up to a smaller amount than has already been spent on high-speed too. Mm. And I think that really puts things into perspective. Yeah, I mean, for our viewers, HS2 or the 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 rail network is is a new line. It's Britain's building... biggest ongoing farce. That's what it is. <laughs> well, they're, they're building a a new railway to connect uh the country better it's supposed to reduce the amount of time it takes to get from manchester to london for example and you know encourage people to invest in businesses in different parts of the country because at the moment it's too heavily centered in london uh james you said it's a farce why do you think that the routes between london and say manchester or birmingham are already not terrible if you want to get to and from london the routes are fine what we need is more infrastructure say for example in rail routes across the north of England, say 
some of them might go from Liverpool to Manchester to Leeds to Hull. That would, investing in that would be more worthwhile than HS2. Yeah, and it's a big expense, isn't it, to, to mm. reduce. I think it's, you can get a train now, can't you, from Manchester to London from, it's like just over two hours, I believe, which is, it's not terrible. Mason, I want to pick up on your point about, about cars, especially, and obviously diesel and petrol cars. Um, there is There are plans in the UK to, to phase out diesel and petrol cars and hybrid cars as well and switch to electric. Can you see that being a seamless transition, considering the number of cars at the moment which, which are you know, reliant on diesel and petrol? Okay. So the current provisions that have been laid out are that there'll be a ban on full combustion engines by 2030, and then the hybrid vehicles will be phased out by 2035. I see no reason to expect that these plans will be held to at any level. Uh, all of the past environmental promises, including the ones that were due by 2020, have just been broadly ignored. And this is something that even uh, members of the government have criticized. But I remember specifically the Transportation Secretary uh, stated that our progress towards the 2020 uh, emissions goals, we were nowhere close. And, you know, that was coming from a conservative MP. I'll try and pull up the specific quote and the person on full context. Name and shame. It is damning. Yeah, that's what we like on this podcast, shaming people. <laughs> of course, um, the UK government has it enshrined in law that we should be carbon neutral by 2050. What policies does that need to entail, Mason, would you say? At carbon neutrality, it's not just building more windmills, right? Because uh, at the, the current way that we invest in green energy, a lot of it ends up not being green. When you produce biofuels, you're still, for example, transporting those biofuels and refining them uh, using methods that are not environmentally friendly. And mm. therefore, you know, uh, Net zero emissions is uh, very often like a misnomer. Uh, The other example that's been uh, hyped up a lot is hydrogen fuels. So combustion of hydrogen instead of traditional fossil fuels. This is also like a misdirection because uh, there are two ways of producing hydrogen fuel. The first is electrolysis of water, in which case you're not really creating fuel, you're storing energy. Uh, The other method is by cracking hydrocarbons, in which case you're still burning fossil fuels. You're just uh, doing it in a different order. I'm glad we brought a scientist onto this show. (laughs) Yeah, someone's qualified to talk about this topic. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, Mason, uh, we we were sort of corresponding before this podcast, and you talked a lot about Boris Johnson's virtue signaling over the climate. Do you want to explain to us a bit about what you meant by that? Uh, I mean, I think that there are several points to like his 10-point environmental plan that exist purely to drum up a sense of nationalism within the country. Uh, So a bit like outside of like the idea that we'll all have hydrogen-powered cars, uh, pledge number 10 is to make uh, London the global centre of green finance. what this means, where, how he's going to invest into this, what programs it's going to involve. Uh, none of this has really been fleshed out to any level of detail that we can call it an actual plan. 
you know, if if I were looking at this as a bullet point list, which I have in front of me, I would say that this was just added because he couldn't think of a tenth point. I don't know what else to say about that. Uh, the other the other point that uh, is listed at number nine is barely any better. Uh, promoting public transport, cycling, and walking. Okay, with what investments? Where? How are you going to do it? Uh, because we've seen what we've seen how investments in public transport work. We've we like we talked about the twenty billion pounds that have been sunk into HS two, which is still not complete. Uh, other other examples include investment in carbon capture. So uh, the cited number is two hundred million pounds invested in carbon capture technologies. You know uh, that sounds like 200, 200 million sounds like a lot of money uh, to the layman at home, but it's pocket change in green technology. Uh, carbon capture technology is priced at approximately 100 US dollars for each ton of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And so that 200 million pounds is going to have to be spread very thin because the UK's emissions in 2019 were 354 million tons. The numbers don't add up. Of course, one thing we've touched on is um, investment in public transport, which from a green perspective is a good thing. I think we can agree on that. Here's a variable, though. COVID-19 and the prospect of pandemics putting people off using public transport. How do we reconcile that? I mean, we're talking about plans that go on for years past the current events that we're dealing with. You know, if we invest now in building green infrastructure, that's not something that's going to be paying dividends until long after people are no longer worried about COVID. So I think, you know, when we look at it from that long term perspective, uh, yeah, COVID becomes less relevant. There's still there's still concerns that should be had. You know, people working in construction sites need to have better COVID safeguards than have currently been implemented. But that's a different discussion to whether or not people will use these uh, public, uh, whether people will use public transport. Yes, for me, cycling infrastructure, public transport that's reliable, safe, clean is a very big part of this and is probably the best way that we can get people to stop using, you know, gas guzzling cars, get them using things which are which are cleaner for the earth. And when you look at cities in the UK, I just don't think that the infrastructure for cycling is, is very good at all. I mean, you know, one needs to only visit cities like Copenhagen or Amsterdam. I know they're extreme examples, but lots of cities in Europe are very, very good with cycling. And when you invest in it and when you make it accessible to people, it's a great thing to do. What's it like in, in your area where you guys live for, for cycling? Um, do you see many cyclists? Has it increased with COVID at all? I mean, I don't live in a particularly, I mean, there is road traffic, but compared to somewhere like London, the roads aren't especially busy around um, the West Country at all. I mean, one problem that we face, um, and the Campaign to Protect Rural England put out a recent study about this, is complete lack of public transport in certain towns. There's a, uh, there's a study you can read. It's uh, about transport deserts, they call it. Lists numerous small towns across the country where there is basically no access to tr public transport or increasingly no access to it. And it's not just a matter of making sure there are more buses. Like you say, it's infrastructure too. Have you ever tried driving around uh, the rural roads in somewhere like Dorset or Devon? 
they're not very amenable to heavy goods vehicles or buses. Let's put it that way. Mm. Yeah. Although, you know, uh, the focus on transportation does sort of lean into the other thing that also desperately needs investment in the more rural areas of England, and that is, uh, you know, uh, internet infrastructure, because yeah. more more and more jobs require telecommunications. I mean, COVID has shown just the sheer number of jobs that can be that can be done remotely. You know, we don't we don't need to ship the entire country to and from work on a daily basis. And I think that that's a very important environmental message as well. But it's not one that's going to stick in areas where there's no cell reception and you're working with decades old Internet infrastructure. Of course, there are a lot a lot of variables to consider there as well, because if we had um, huge numbers of the population working from home all the time, where they're working from the same room in which they sleep, there could be a major mental health crisis. Yeah, something that we've already seen this year. Mm. Yeah, arguably that's ongoing, isn't it? Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, and mental health, mental health in the UK is something that has historically had a terrible public investment in. Uh, an increasing amount of the of the mental health burdens have been pushed onto charitable organisations rather than the NHS. This is something that I and people I've spoken to have personal experience with. You can go to your GP, ask for a mental health recommendation, and they'll bring up a list on Google of which charities are near you. Either that or you fork out tons for a private um, mental health specialist, but obviously that's an option that's not available to very many people. Do we think that things like commuting habits, which you know seem to have gone away with the two lockdowns we've had, we're just about to come out of, of our second lockdown in the UK, um, according to reports, the vaccine is very close now. Do you think we're going to go back to commuting to work, long train journeys and bus journeys and things like that? Depends on whether there's the political will to do that. Yeah. Well, or I say to do that, to provide an alternative to that. I think that in a lot of businesses, there's a broad fear of these kinds of changes. Managers know how to manage people when they have everyone in their cubicles or at their desks. Uh, they don't. They don't know how to do the same thing through a Zoom call. Uh, the training in terms of of business understanding just isn't there yet. I think it's the bottom line, isn't it? We need broadband communism. <laughs> what do you mean by broadband communism? Well, that was what Labour's um, policy of. Um, Universal high-speed internet was branded at the last election, wasn't it? Yeah. And I mean, you, um... look, if, if you live in any vaguely rural areas, you'd know that policies such as that could be like an absolute game changer for so many people. Yet it just got, you know, completely lambasted as this fanciful idea. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because it, you know, it was it it was slated as you say, but you think about how actually high-speed internet would would revitalize the economy. You think about the amount of businesses that would benefit from that, how many jobs would be created. And how many young people who struggle to move away from yeah. such areas to unaffordable places like London could start their own businesses online. Yeah. yeah. And also the improvements that would give an access to education. Uh, the ability to educate yourself online has improved tremendously over the past several years. And this isn't an advertisement for Skillshare. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. No, but we've all done it, haven't we? We've all, I think, done lockdown. We've all, look, you know, looked online at some sort of course, whether that be on YouTube or something else, or even more formal learning. I've I've partaken in some formal learning online. And I'm, not, I'm not going to do a, a, an advert for Duolingo. Oh, whoops. <laughs> yeah, but no, but it, you're right. Absolutely. It's opened up some doors, hasn't it? Um, yeah. The one thing I worry, though, about things like these, you know, video teleconferencing apps and channels is that I've heard some horror stories. You know, I've heard some companies are making people, you know, for example, log into one Zoom call for the whole day and stay on that because they can then quickly be in touch with, you know, other staff members. And for me, that just sounds awful. I can't well, that's, that's that's where there is a again, there's a much broader picture to be had here, but that's where there's a workers rights cons- um uh, issue that comes into it yeah like i mean yeah it's it's been a, it's been a debate for a while now whether or not people should be le- you know whether or not people should uh face repercussions at their job for not answering emails when they're when they're off duty or on the weekend this, yeah. this has been an ongoing workers rights issue and it's one that i think is going to be moved to the forefront a lot more when people are working in an always online environment yeah. How have you guys found it personally? Because I mean, I, I'm I'm all online now. You know, everything I do is online and I've actually found it quite difficult. At, at first, it was manageable and novelty, I think, and I got through it. But but now, actually, when we're in the dark winter months and, you know, if anyone's listening or watching this and not in England, well, you know, winter is dark and cold and wet and it, it's not fun. And you know, the only daylight you see really is in the morning because it's gone. The sun's gone down by the time you finish work. So I found it a lot more difficult this time how what's your experience been of that i mean it's always hard at this time of the year isn't it because i mean if you work in an office nine to five during these winter months you go to work in the dark and leave work in the dark um Mm. how have i found it i'm just plodding on as usual to be honest it's apart from the uh outside it's barely any different to the last one and if like me you are somebody who erroneously lives with your curtains always closed because you like it like that then you know i shield myself from that on the subject of um being able to ignore emails yes i think that is a you know your employer always having this contact with you especially when you have for example a work phone and they can just keep on sending you notifications it i think is a very pertinent issue especially during uh working from home times i mean speaking as somebody who's a journalist i mean it's kind of essential for me to always be plugged in in case something springs up. But for different people in different professions, that's a very different story. That's hard, that though, isn't it? To be plugged in all the time. Yeah. I mean, you need you need to give yourself some downtime. But some of us are workaholics. What can I say? But yeah, I mean, I I personally don't feel it in the same way because you know I I've been I've been using my computer for work for a long time. I know the different methods which can help you to sort of create that work-life balance despite the fact that both your work and your life happen in front of the same screen mm. i'm actually yeah i think if you worked online already before the pandemic i think you're in a much better position aren't you because you know already what it's like that must have been a, an easier transition right rather than you know being thrown into the online world for sure yeah obviously you know th- there are still like there are still difficulties that the lockdown uh, produces, but uh, it's uh, what if if you're used to working online, you have better access to, I guess, the tools and techniques to handle that mental stress. 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have been forced to adjust very quickly. They've been thrown in at the deep end. And Mm. yeah, it's not always the easiest thing to adapt like that, especially when you're so used to working in an office all the time, for example. Yeah, but I think that might raise the point that perhaps perhaps training for work should include uh, these kinds of provisions, how Mm. how it is that you are able to work outside of outside of, you know, what we currently considered to be the traditional environment, because I do believe that uh, working from home will become uh, more prominent in the future, and there will be regulatory issues associated with it. There will be mental health stresses that people feel as a result. And those, those are things that we need to, I think, uh, head off while we're able to, rather than say it'll be over in a few weeks. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, let's let's look at an international perspective now. Let's let's broaden the discussion a little bit. So I'm going to throw some stats in there, and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go to Statista.com. This is a, a statistics website, and this is the largest producers of CO2 fossil fuel emissions. This is from 2018, mm-hmm. and it's by share, uh, global share. Um, can you have a guess of what the top, say, three countries were in the world? Well, I think it's going to be it's going to be China, US, India, right. isn't it? Yeah, got it. Yeah, bingo. It's got China, 27.52%. This is on statista.com, 2018. USA, 14.81. India, 7.26. China, of course, recently said it's going to aim to be carbon neutral by 2060. Um, Obviously, the IPCC report that came out a couple of years ago advised that the world be carbon neutral by 2050 to avoid going over that crucial 1.5 degrees C rise in temperature. Uh, do that, and that would still cause a lot of problems to go up 1.5 degrees, let's be clear. Mm. So, I mean, China's target is arguably not enough. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think I think China sort of moving that goalpost represents, uh, you know, I, I think it's dangerous, but I think it does also represent a sort of long-term thinking that we don't see in a lot of nations. Because I think that, you know, I... I I have a stronger belief that China will meet their commitments by 2060 than a lot of other nations will by 2050. Uh, China's China's political worldview has been dominated by long-term thinking for generations, decades now. Yeah. Deng Xiaoping Uh, said, hide your strength and bide your time. Yeah, there's, I think it was uh, an analogy by Kissinger that, uh, you know, American politicians play chess while Chinese politicians play Go. The difference being that one is one is about trading resources against your opponent and the other is about building up over time. And I think mm-hmm. that does sort of highlight some of the big differences in how they approach geopolitics. Both are zero sum games, so you know it's mm-hmm. not an ideal situation, but of course one major variable now is that um uh, everyone's favorite orange tyrant is now uh at time of recording, set to be leaving the White House on January the 20th. Of course, he um, with, withdrew the United States from the Paris Climate Agreement. Joe Biden is set to take the United States back into this. How much of a game changer is that? How much? Obviously, Joe Biden will likely follow through with that promise. But how much of a change in actual policy do we expect to see? Um, I've, I haven't looked through like the entire play by play. But I do know that uh, I do know that you know uh, Biden ran on a platform of investing more heavily in green technology. You know, it's not the it's not the Green New Deal, 
but it's definitely significantly more than would be seen under Trump. At the moment, we take what we can get. Yeah, um, I, I presume by the orange tyrant, we all know who James is referring to. That'll be uh, Donald Trump, just in case you, you haven't noticed that he lost the election. Um, and Biden is set to, to come in in January as the new president. On, on a personal level, um, on the individual level, what responsibility do people have to play in this in this you know battle? Maybe we might call it to to get in control of, the, of climate change. And what role do companies and organisations have to play? Um, I would say that it is uh, it is it is broadly it is broadly companies and organisations that are that are engaging in destructive. Uh, they're engaging in destructive behavior towards the environment. You know, uh, the Amazon isn't being cut down by a large number of individual loggers, each picking up an axe and heading out for the day. It's happening because uh, large numbers of these people are being hired by large companies to chop down as many trees as they're able to. So we can't hold that against the individuals. But isn't there an argument to say that, for example, when people purchase lots of items online, you know, like books, books is a good example. Pe- people often purchase books online now because it's quite convenient. You know, I've, I've done it. We've all done it. But isn't there an argument that actually people should take uh, take a choice not to do that and they should go to local bookstores instead and they should try to shop at, you know, secondhand stores instead rather than falling for these perhaps, you know, Black Friday deals or online deals, which which do get us all eventually, don't they? But, you know, surely there's got to be some response. That's how they get you, isn't it? Because it's so much more efficient to do it that way. Yeah, it's dangerously cheaper and easier, isn't it, to do that? Yeah. Obviously, if everyone on the planet decided to boycott these large companies, they would they would carry out some changes. But we've seen, you know, large grassroots efforts to sort of uh, force environmental change from companies like Amazon, uh, being one of the one of the big uh, one one of the one of the big companies that I think we're talking about here, uh, you know, there, there was even a union effort uh, in a company that notoriously disallows unions to try and force Amazon to improve their climate policy, and we've seen very little positive change as a result of that. I mean, we've seen some limited concessions, but limited and limited systemic changes, and I think that's an important point to consider. There's a limited amount that can be done from outside of these institutions. Mm. Speaking speaking of what people can do as individuals, um, what do we all make of the methods of um, Extinction Rebellion? We had to get onto this. Yeah, I, I think we've talked previously that it's not the best uh, method of activism to block off public transport. Especially uh, when your message is around climate. Yes. Um, yeah. We we need we need more people using public transport, and also you're just not going to you're just not going to win any favor by preventing people from going to work, or getting home to see their kids, pick up yeah. their kids from school, or I mean, like I say, there definitely need to be climate protests and people taking to the streets to raise awareness for these issues. They need to be better targeted, though. Mm. Yeah. There have also been Target cases... the people who profit from oil companies, for example. That's hard, though, isn't it? Because there's go and, a, go there's and a faceless element. Shell, go, and, go and protest outside Shell H quarters, for example. 
Yeah, there's a faceless element to those companies, I think, which makes that hard. And I think it's hard to see the impact of that, you know, like protesting outside a company's office. Well, I think there's a feeling that, well, whatever, why why should they care? You know, they're still making their profits. And that's probably largely true, whereas causing disruption at an airport, there's probably you can see the consequences of that more clearly. I, mm-hmm. I guess one would argue. I mean, uh, take, taking an example from Canada, why protest at the companies or at the pub or at public institutions when you can protest at the oil pipelines, disrupt yeah. the construction efforts, uh, prevent the further exploitation of the environment? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Do Do you have any sympathy, though? Like I, I asked before, do you have any sympathy with the argument that people should do more? Like I, I'm totally with you guys that companies should do more. Is there also an argument that some people are not completely buying into the whole idea and are not, you know, pulling their fair share? I I th- I think I think it's a good sign if people are trying to take uh, actions. For example, going vegan would be one. At the same time, I only think there's so much individuals can do. Yeah, and you know, like it, each additional effort of environmental awareness is an additional amount of mental energy that you're expending. You know, people people are people are finite resources to themselves. Uh, you can't ask them to fully commit themselves to every cause, and there are causes that are equally viable to the climate. Yeah. Going vegan is an example. You know, uh, proper use of plastics. There are a lot of different things that each require a small amount more effort, and uh, moving too much of the environmental burden onto personal responsibility, uh, I think, weakens that effort. Uh, yeah, so I think, you know, rather these things do need to happen more at the supply side. Make sure that the products people are buying are using more environmentally friendly materials that are being sourced more locally. I think I think that's where we need to move towards. Hmm. Mason, you're the scientist in the room. What do we do about climate change deniers? Ooh, this is uh, this is a complex one. <laughs> at this point, I mean... Rhetorically or strategically? <laughs> Let's have both. <laughs> um, I mean, strategically, I I don't think I think it's incredibly irresponsible when the media platforms climate deniers. Uh, you know, because a big part of the climate a big part of the climate denier strategy, uh, not at an individual level but at a systemic level, is sort of uh, utilizing or even abusing. Uh, fairness doctrine, you know, the idea that both sides of the argument need to be given representation means that uh, people who are very talented liars are able to represent their views a lot more eloquently than, say, for example, a talented climate scientist who's not good at speaking to cameras. And rhetorically, what what would you do to the climate deniers? Um, I mean, the, there's a mix of different strategies. Uh, once you're familiarized with them, pretty much every climate denial argument can be debunked. I've seen pretty much all of them. Uh, my favorite is my favorite is the one about my favorite is the ones about volcanoes, just because that one takes a bit more research to debunk. Uh, the idea that volcanoes cause more CO2 emissions than like human activity uh, isn't borne out by the data, but it, it's something that sounds right, right? Which is something that I think a lot of climate denial science relies on. So just Pick it apart one bit mm. at a time, uh, and if they refuse to accept science, you just laugh them out of the room. And there's a, there's a meme I see getting shared around so many times that is about saying says things like 
the climate's been changing since forever. It's always changing. And the idea that humans can change it with a carbon tax is laughable. I mean, obviously, that's a massive straw man. But like you say, it's the sort of thing to someone who's not in the know that just sounds right, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, like uh, the, the, the other... And good at portraying other... yourself as sort of the down-to-earth realist. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, this is, this is sort of how uh, climate denialism works as a rhetorical strategy, right? Because uh, they, they always have another layer to fall back on. Even if you get them to concede that climate change exists, they'll then say that uh, there's nothing to be done about it. Uh, if you push them on that, they'll say that if you were to do something about it, it would be wor- it, it, the cure would be worse than the poison. But, but the Mason, it can't be global warming because the Earth is flat. Checkmate. <laughs> I mean, can't the argue Earth with is that. flat, but the, the flat Earth is accelerating <laughs> upwards at a constant speed. And the movement <laughs> generates heat. Yeah, it's it's really hard, isn't it, to, to argue with climate deniers. And I, I also really find it... Uh, as if you're... As if of all the arguments that you choose to, you know... To, to put your neck on the line with it would be that one that 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 we shouldn't protect the environment which is quite obviously nose diving in a bad way but yeah i think i think more dangerous than you are the outright deniers who well that well they have footholds are largely like laughed out of the room i think are you know the groups that acknowledge the existence of climate change but you know downplay it to various degrees mm. or say that different solutions are non-viable uh, I think these are the most dangerous because their position still advocates for doing nothing, but it's a lot more effective at persuading people. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I'm sort of laughing about this topic, and you know, there are there is some humour to it, but I also think you know when America just decided to pull away from um, you know from the Paris Climate Agreement, it kind of gave legitimacy, didn't it, to a lot of those views, which is the frightening thing, and it can only have encouraged people like that to maybe speak out even more loudly well it fitted uh, I, trump's narrative didn't it especially given that beforehand he had what was it he tweeted that um global, global warming, warming was a chinese was hoax designed designed to make american manufacturing less competitive i mean it's a ridiculous statement but at the same time you can see how it plays into his narrative yeah especially when you already have people buying the argument that outsourcing to china is the main reason why u.s um manufacturing jobs have been vanishing instead of the fact that you know most of them have been lost to automation not to outsourcing at the same time if you buy that narrative you know it's just another stepping stone down the pipeline that that metaphor doesn't work but you get what i mean i'm trying to figure out which which letters and which words in that tweet were capitalized and not capitalized <laughs> in my head <laughs> Yeah. Uh, how about total loser China donald lost <laughs> yeah exactly thanks for listening to this episode i was your host declan carey and in this show i was joined by james moss our co-editor and mason Kwa, our reporter do make sure to stick around and listen to part two where we discuss season four of the netflix hit the crown and until then see you next time